In the past few weeks, we've been going through a sermon series called Identity and talking about our identity as a church family and who we aim to be in the community. And, and from that, what our identity gets to be as individuals and who, and who we are called to be as children of God, as followers of Jesus. And uh, as part of our identity here at Hope, uh, we, we say that we want to be a gospel-centered family or a gospel-centered community on mission or, or sent to the Nazareth area. Uh, we want to be a gospel-centered community, a gospel-centered family sent to Nazareth to live out the kingdom of God and to invite people further into it. Um, so that's even part of what we're doing today is, is trying to live out the, the goodness of, of the gospel and the kingdom and inviting people further into it. And so in the first service, you remember I laid out what, what it means to be centered on simply Jesus and talk about being centered on the gospel. In the next two weeks, we talked about the gospel being the good news that, that God loves us and is for us and through Jesus gives us victory in life, through his life and death and resurrection. And so that's, that's the gospel that we want to be centered on. That's the good news that we want to be centered on. And so more than just being gospel-centered, though, we aim to be a community. We aim to be a family on mission, inviting others into the kingdom of God. And I want to be really clear about that. When I say we are inviting people into the kingdom of God, I mean that intentionally because we're not just inviting them into a church. I don't know how long this church is going to be in existence, but I know that the kingdom of God lives forever. The family of God lives forever. So we're inviting people into something bigger than just a local church. Now, going all the way back to the beginning, remember we talked about Adam and Eve and our human ancestry. We know that God created humanity, and he said it's good, but it's better as a community. It's better as a family. And so even God in his triune nature in the Trinity is a community of himself. God loves community and and wants to see it grown and see it spread around the earth. And I think deep down, all of us know the community is good. We want to be part of a family, part of a a tribe, part of something bigger than just ourselves. Um, And we might even wish that our family might be a little bit better than it was, or our community might be a little bit better than it was. But we're always longing for this thing, I think, deep down inside of us. And so today and next week, we're going to look through the scriptures to see kind of how God loves and brings redemption to humanity through a family. This is always what he has done from the very beginning. First in the family of Adam and Eve, and then through redemption through the family of Israel, and ultimately through the family of God in Jesus. And so we're going to look at what that looks like. And we'll look at how God wants to adopt men and women into his family to make them his own, to, to encourage them, to give them a new life, a new inheritance, a new purpose on this earth and into eternity. And so I want to say it again that we're not called into a religion, we're not called into a club, we're not called into some secret society, we're not even called into a church or a denomination or a political party or anything like that. We're called into the family of God, and that's what I want to set up today and talk about next week as well. Now, you may be thinking, okay, great, I would love a new family, right? Like some of you kids, I'm sure you're like, I would love new parents, that'd be great, if I, or, or I'd love a new family. But, but in all honesty, some of you might have had really really difficult families. You might still have really difficult families to be with, families that you do not look forward to being with at Christmas or Easter. You, you might have this, this family of origin that has just been brutal to you, and I know that that is part of reality. It's just true, right? Maybe you had a great family. I love my family. I can't wait to see them in the holidays, and, and so they're decent people. They invested in me and built me up, and maybe you had a good family. But the truth of the matter is, your family may have been great. They might be great, 
But the truth is, they will come to an end. That time will end, but our God is better than that family and is bigger than that family and is eternally alive and good towards us. And he's not going anywhere. Or they may have been terrible. They might be terrible. But they too will come to an end. That family, that earthly family will end, but God is better and bigger and eternally good and eternally a good father. In either case, my hope is that after the, the last few weeks of talking about God's goodness towards us and his love for us, that you can take solace in the fact that God loves you, that God is for you, that God wants to encourage you, wants to build into you, wants to bring you into his family and adopt you, wants to give you a new inheritance and a new purpose in this life. Now that's not to say, I want to say this right from the very beginning, this is not to say that being in the family of God makes everything easy now. This is what Krista talked about in that song. This is what I talked about earlier, so I'm going to talk about it again. That life can still be and, and will still be frustrating, will still be difficult. You will still encounter things that are terrible to go through. It, does, it doesn't make that go away. But, but what we find is that God is eternally good. And he is eternally wise and eternally powerful and eternally redemptive even through our hard things. So to help us navigate what it looks like to be brought into the family of God we're gonna, uh, and to be adopted as a child of God into his family, we're going to look um, at a passage in Luke 15. Um, and we're going to look at a parable of Jesus. Now, Jesus would use these parables or these stories to, to illustrate his character, to illustrate who God is, to illustrate something about humanity, and ultimately to illustrate something heavenly, he would use earthly examples, something that was plausible for people to understand. They're called a parable. So we're going to look at a parable um, in Luke 15. And so in Luke 15, uh, he records Jesus is, is being surrounded by two different types of people. Jesus is being surrounded by, by sinners, right? By, by lowly types, by uh, outcasts because of illness. He's being surrounded by prostitutes. He's being surrounded by, you know, uh, covetous tax collectors and, and the enemies of Israel. And then he's also being surrounded by these, what I would call, self-righteous moralists. These people who were mad at him for even hanging out with these sinful types in the first place. And Luke is documenting that both of these are hanging out around him continually. And they're just, and this this these moralists are starting to get on his case about it, that, that he would share a meal with them, that he might be condoning their sinful behavior. And how could Jesus do this? And so when, when he's surrounded by sinners and by the self-righteous, Jesus tells these three parables in Luke 15, all about something that's been lost, something that's gone missing and people looking for it. The first parable he tells is about a, a man, a shepherd who has a hundred sheep and he loses one. And it says that he leaves the 99 to go and look for this one that's gone missing. And when he finds it, he calls his friends together and he says, celebrate with me for what's lost has been found. And then he tells another parable about a woman who uh, loses, it's like a week's worth of her her income in her house. And she loses it and she's cleaning the house and she's tearing the place apart looking for it. She can't find it. When she finds it, she calls her friends and says, come and celebrate with me because what's lost has been found. Uh, I'm going to have David come up and, and read a passage for us. He's, he's going to read this third parable, um, just because I get tired of hearing my own voice. Uh, in Luke 15, he's going to read the parable of, maybe you've heard this before, the, the prodigal son, uh, or the lost son. And, and in this story, I'm just going to set it up a little bit, because it, it jumps right into it. It's this story about these two sons and their interaction with their father, and the one son who asks for his inheritance early and then leaves his family when he takes it. So can you just read that passage for us? 
the parable of the lost son. And Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and then squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death? I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him, and he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, and no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet, bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine who was dead and is alive again, he was lost and is found, so they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field, and when he came near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has, uh, he has him back and safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I can celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Thanks, man. So we're going to look at this, this story, this parable, in three sections. The younger son, the older son, and then what I would call the unresolved ending. Uh, probably the easiest character to point a finger at is the younger son. Uh, he clearly is the, 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 the self-centered, disrespectful, you know, rebellious, unwise child of this, this father. And so to begin with, in this story, by asking for his father's inheritance, he's basically saying, you're dead to me. I want what's mine before you're even dead. You might as well be dead. Just give me what is mine. And he has no appreciation for the father's hard work, no appreciation for his production, no, no appreciation for his care or the relationship of just being with the father. He just wants what his, and he wants to be rid of the father's supervision, rid of the relationship. And, and as with much of biblical history, we know that the younger son typically gets less than the older son. So in this case, the younger son was probably due about one-third of the inheritance. The older son would have gotten two-thirds. So 
the father would have to basically liquidate a third of his assets and give it to this younger son so he can run off. And that's what he does, right? He, he, just, he takes a third of the, the father's assets and he runs off to a distant country and he, and he squanders it all over the place. And he, and he lives this rebellious, you know, wild life. And his older brother, he makes a claim that he's, he's spending time with prostitutes and he's spending money on that. And, and so he ends up like many people that pursue their own gluttony, their own needs, their own lusts, their own passions, all on their own. He ends up alone uh, with no friends, no support, no money, and at the bottom of the economic totem pole, living in another country, wishing he could just eat the food of the pigs that he's serving. He is an embarrassment to himself because of his regrettable behavior. But beyond that, he's an embarrassment to his family and to his community. In those days, if you, if you did something disrespectful, it, it, it brought shame on your whole family. And it brought shame on his extended community, who was probably just his extended family. So everyone is all together, and they know what he's done. They know who he is. They, 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 they would know that, that you were a disaster. They would know what you did to your father. They would know what kind of wreck that your life is. They would know that you should make restitution for this. So they would look at you with shame And everyone would know that if you ever showed your face again around the property, that your father had every right to come out and slap you across the face and send you packing to regain his own dignity, to regain the dignity of his own family. When when we lived in Jordan for a year, um, you know, it's a Middle Eastern country, and this this concept of shame in the family is still very much prevalent in lots of places of the world, but particularly where we were in the Middle East. And there was this one day where. I was driving my car, and my friend was riding in the passenger seat, and, and all of a sudden we got pelted with little pebbles, just like a handful of rocks pelted the car. And my friend's like, stop the car! And he had, he had been there for a while as, as an international worker, and so we stopped the car, and he starts yelling out the window at this little kid, where is your father? Where is your... And he's yelling in Arabic, and I'm like, oh my gosh, like, what is happening? And he's yelling at this kid, and this kid was terrified, terrified, not of my friend, terrified that his dad was going to get involved. Terrified that he had just shamed his family, and you know what was coming for him. Like, he was in trouble because he brought this shame on his family. Like, this is still very much a real thing. We might not experience it as much as individualistic Americans, but, but in this culture, it's this concept that everyone is ashamed of you. Everyone is disappointed in your behavior, and you better make it right. So, when the younger son comes to his senses, right, he's taken this inheritance, he's squandered it, he's living in a foreign land, slopping around with pigs, wishing he'd eat their food. He's like, what am I doing? He comes to his senses. What does he do? Does he, does he decide to just go back and act like nothing happened? Hopefully he can just waltz back in. Uh, does, he, does he make an effort to beg to be let back into the good graces? No, no. He concocts a plan to go back to his father and say, look, I'll do this. Just make me, just make me like one of your hired hands. Just make me a slave. That, that's what I'll be. I can do that. Just let me back into just a little bit of your property. Like, just let me out there in the edges. Let me work the fields. That's, that's good enough. He just thinks that he has to grovel his way back in. And then, even then, only be able to take a position of servitude. To be able to take a, a lowly position in the father's household. Because he feels like he's just gone too far. Have you ever felt like that? You ever had a relationship like that? Just even a human relationship where you felt like, I've gone too far. I, I feel like that. Or I've said too much. This is not going to be reconciled. I've, I've, I've said too much. I've done too much damage. What about with God? 
Have you, have you ever felt like this? Do you feel like this with God? Like deep down, do you really feel like this maybe towards God that, that he knows way too much about you to let you back into his good graces? That your best bet is to take a path of hanging your head low, coming back in shame, that God's going to look at you with shame, wag his finger at you, that he has no desire to let you move beyond your betrayal or your rebellion. I call this kind of the younger brother plan of, of here's how I'm going to get back into God's presence. And even at that, it's just going to be on the outskirts. I'm going to just hang my head low and come back and beat myself up and grovel and beg and beg. And, and, and hopefully God will let me back in. But then even then, it's the father, the relationship with him. It's just work. It's not joy. It's a form of, of guilt-induced slavery to the father where we come back and say, look, I'm not even worthy to be a son or a daughter. I'll just be a slave. But is that how Jesus portrays the father in this story? Is that how Jesus portrayed the father through all of his ministry? That how does Jesus describe this father's reaction to this rebellious, shameful son? Look at 1520. He says, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. And his father was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Friends, there's, there's a ton to unpack here. I'm just going to break it down into a couple pieces. Um, while he was still a long way off, the father saw him. I picture, I picture the father standing in the morning like, you know, good cup of Turkish coffee or, uh, you know, tea. And he's standing there and he's looking out over the horizon, looking at his property and, and, and satisfied and happy with its production and what's happening there, but, but longing for his son, wishing his son was back with him. He's already looking for him, hoping for his return. Jesus says he was filled with compassion. At the sight of his rebellious, shame-inducing son, he's filled with compassion. Not embarrassment, not spite, not anger, not any of that. He's looking at him with compassion. And then what? He runs to him. He throws his arms around him. He kisses him. Friends, in light of the culture of this day, this is bizarre behavior. This father should have been ready for the son to make the long walk up the driveway, standing there dignified, and, and slap him when he got there. He shouldn't have done any of this, hiking up of his robe and running to his son and embracing him with with compassion, with a hug, with a kiss, and calling him his son. Can you notice something with me, though? Please hear this. It is not the son's repentance that causes the father's love. It's not the son's repentance that causes the father's love. The son hasn't said anything at this point. He's not said, I'm sorry. He's not groveled. The father runs to him before there's even repentance and says, I am for you. I love you. You're my son. And then the son, like he doesn't even hear it, starts to go into his groveling. This is the younger son plan kicking into effect, right? He's going to go in, he's going to grovel, and he's going to try to show his father this plan that he had about how he's going to come back and he wants to be a slave, and maybe then he could just be in the good graces. And the father brushes past all of that and says, I want to have a party. I'm glad you're back. I want to celebrate you because you were, you, you were lost and now you're found. You were dead and you're alive. I want to have a party. So in this story, what we see is it's similar to the first two parables in Luke 15, that, that this man who lost a sheep celebrates when it's found. This woman who lost her income celebrates when her income is found. And now we have this picture of the father who's celebrating when the son that was lost is found. Friends, Jesus is making it clear that there is hope for rebellious humanity. 
That's what we've been talking about the last couple weeks, right? That we have turned from God and we've walked away. And, and, and what Jesus is making clear is that there is hope for rebellious humanity. That restoration is available to even the worst offender. But I want to point out two things about this that are happening simultaneously. The first is this. Returning to the Father takes realizing the rebellion. Right? This, this, this son needed to come to his senses and realize, my way of doing things is not quite working. I have made terrible decisions. I need to turn and go back to the Father. This is that part of the gospel that we say where we're more sinful than we care to admit. Like he's admitting his jacked up nature, that he is broken, that he has messed this up, and he needs restoration with the Father. It's what scripture calls repentance, right? That big scary word of Christianity. Like it's, rep- it's turning and saying, this was dumb, I should go this way and go back to the Father. So that's happening on one side of things. But simultaneous to that, what is also happening? The Father is looking for his lost children. He's looking for them with compassion, with love, with grace, saying, come back. So that's the other half. We are sinful, but we're more loved than we will ever realize by God. And so simultaneous to repentance is God's compassion, God's grace towards humanity, undignified, running with his robe up, smothering you, kissing you, calling you his son, calling you his daughter. It's these two things, can I say this? It's these two things that lead to gospel-motivated obedience. A lot of times a church like ours will get accused of antinomianism, whether we're anti-law, that, well, there just must not be any behavior attached to this. This is just all grace. It's all gospel. Everything's just accepted. Friends, what we're going to talk about over the next several weeks is how when we realize we're loved by the Father and are brought into his family and are filled with the Spirit of God, it leads to gospel-motivated obedience. You see, it's sanctification starts to happen because we're with God, because we know who we are. So this is why I asked in the beginning, just walk with me through these seven weeks of this series. And we're going to go from gospel to family, to mission, and, the, and the, the action that comes out of being with the Father, which is gospel-motivated obedience. Okay, that's a whole side thing. Okay, look, I, I don't know where you find yourself today. I don't know where you're at in your journey with God, with Jesus, uh, but I know this. The Father is always on the lookout for his children. He's always standing on the porch, looking at a distance, saying, where are they? When are they coming home? I love them. I am for them. I have compassion for them. He sees you and he loves you despite your past, despite your guilt, despite your regrets, despite your bad decisions of which we've all made many. He hikes up his robe and he runs to you and says, I love you. I'm for you. Turn. Come back. Come back to me. He has no intention of making you a slave again. Please hear that. He has no intention of making you continue to grovel and continue to be just on the outskirts, and to just be a slave. He has every intention of restoring his sons or his children to being sons and daughters of the king. Would you turn to him today? Would you say, you know what? I'm done. I'm done with this way, and I want to be a child of God instead. Now, for many years, the the focus of this parable has been on the first son. In many of your Bibles, if you look it up, it's called the prodigal son, and it's about this first son that walked away, and and, you know, I, I think there's a reason for that, but Let's remember who else was surrounding Jesus when this parable started. It wasn't just sinful, rebellious sons and daughters of God. It was also the self-righteous moralists, the Pharisees who were standing there saying, Jesus, you shouldn't be hanging out with them. And I think we need to turn an eye to them because there's a reason that Luke incorporated that part of the story and that Jesus leaves this story unresolved. What happens next, right? 
Younger brother comes home. Father has compassion. They decide to have a party. He's going to give him the fattened calf. He's going to put a ring on him. He's going to put a robe on him. The older brother comes in from working the fields, and he hears what's happening, and he says, what in the world is going on? What is this celebration? He grabs one of the slaves, one of the servants, and says, what is happening? And the servant says, your brother's home. Your father is happy that he has him back safe and sound. We've killed the fatted calf. Like, we're going to have a killer party. And the brother loses it. It says this in 1528. He says, the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your, your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. You hear the indignation in his voice. Again, similar to before, we've got to look at a couple things here. He refuses to go into the party. He refuses to go into the party. So the first son is rebellious, and he shames his father by leaving. This son shames his father by not going in. He says, you're going to throw a party, head of the household? Forget it, I'm not going in. And he brings shame upon himself and upon his family. It's the same thing happening all over again. But what is the father's reaction? Similar to looking out from the porch for his son, he goes out to this son, and he pleads with him. And he says, would you come in? Would you come in and celebrate the fact that, celebrate my joy, is honestly what he's asking. And he begs him to come in. And what is the son, the older son's reaction? He says, look, look you, total disrespect. Doesn't call him father, doesn't call him dad. He says, look you, total disrespect. And he says, look you, this son of yours comes home. He can't even say my brother. He can't even say Jacob. John, whatever his name was, John. He says, this, bro- this son of yours comes home and you do all this stuff for him. Just now he's done with being a son. He's done with being a brother. And now here's the big one. He says, I've never disobeyed you. I've done everything you've asked of me and you haven't even given me a goat. Like, you've done nothing for me. Call this the older brother plan. There's a younger brother plan of groveling and going into slavery. Here's the older brother plan of, I've done everything for you. You owe me. You owe me. What we see in this is that the older brother also has a heart full of pride, a heart full of rebellion, a heart full of sin, just like the younger brother. He, too, does not care about a relationship with the father. He just wants to get the goods that the father stands to offer him. Do you catch that? Like, he doesn't care about the relationship. He doesn't care that he gets to be with God he doesn't, or with his father. He doesn't care that he gets to be in his presence. He's been working so hard not to please his own work ethic, not to honor his father. He's been working so hard because he says, I am earning what is rightfully mine. You should have given it to me by now. You haven't even given me a goat. Like if you kids ever want to rebel against your parents and you're unhappy, just say, you haven't even given me a goat. You can remember that. Okay. He says, I deserve this. I have worked hard. I should be getting this party. Not him. Not that rebellious son of yours. I should be getting this party. And do you hear the sadness in the father's voice at the end of this? He says, son, you have always had me. You have always been with me. I have always been with you. Everything I have is yours. It's all yours. But we had to celebrate because this son, this brother, was lost and he's found. He was dead, but... He's alive. And the parable just ends. It just ends. It's unresolved. It ends right there. And I think it's on purpose. 
I think it's on purpose that Jesus just leaves it hanging. I mean, remember who was surrounding Jesus when he's telling this parable. All these self-righteous Pharisees, these moralists who were saying they need to behave this way, behave this way, and Jesus just leaves it. I would tell you that they are the older brother types who are surrounding Jesus saying, you shouldn't be hanging out with these younger brother types, Jesus. You're clearly condoning their behavior by being with them. And they're mad at Jesus that he's acting so undignified. And in their older brother world, Jesus should just chase off these younger brothers. He should shame them and make them go their own way so that they, the older brothers, can have the fatted calf. This is why Jesus just leaves this hanging. He just leaves it unresolved. Mic drop. Done. Just over. He just leaves it there for these self-righteous older brother types to think, well, now what? These other two parables resolve. This one does not. Here's what we need to realize, friends. The younger brother finds resolution in this story. His part of the story finds resolution because of two things. He was returning to the father, and the father's loving embrace stands at the ready to receive him. And the older brother, the self-righteous, religious, moralist, are left standing outside the party. They're left outside of the celebration <clears throat> because they're actually unrepentant. They're actually too prideful. They want to control the father for their own benefit. They refuse to believe that they actually need to turn because they've got their own decrepit spirituality, that they've got their own brokenness and turn to the Father. Friends, this is so common. I can speak to mostly Christianity of the West. This is so common in Christianity of the West, this older brother nature. This is why so many people look at born-agains and look at evangelicals and say, it's a bunch of judgmental, self-righteous people. I don't want anything to do with it. And I think older brotherism ends up producing younger brothers who say, I'm out. I'm out then. If this is what it's about, I'm out. I don't want anything to do with this. And they leave, and they leave the church, and they leave Christianity, and they say, I'm going to go do something else altogether because I don't want to be a part of this. I think also what happens in churches is, is older brothers start to tell people, well, now that you've made it in, here's how you better stay in. Okay, you've come in under grace, and the Father's loved you. That's nice and everything, but now that you're here... You better read this book. You better give this much. You better be here this often. You better serve in this way. You better love your wife this way. Raise your kids this way. Have this kind of job. Wear these kind of clothes. Listen to this kind of music. Do all this. Celebrate this holiday. And it becomes legalism all over again. And so older brotherism starts to creep back in and say, that's great that you've been accepted by Jesus, but you better now hold on to it. And it moves into slavery again within the church. And churches end up becoming full of all these older brother types saying, yeah, you better behave a certain way. Or else maybe you're not really in. Can, just be, can we just be honest that that happens and say that we don't want to be that? <laughs> that our identity is wrapped up in the gospel, in the freedom of Jesus, and when we're adopted as children, it leads to gospel-motivated obedience. It leads to righteousness that comes through sanctification, through being transformed by being in the presence of the Father. That we can allow rebellious children in our midst. And that self-righteousness gets corrected by grace, not by more law. Friends, I think I can speak to this pretty honestly because <clears throat> it's my go-to tendency to be self-righteous. <clears throat> Excuse me. I don't know if it's yours, but it is for me. Like, when things don't go well for me, I'm immediately like, God, you owe me. I'm a pastor. Like, I've given my life to this. Let me make a couple green lights. Like... <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, <clears throat> it seems silly, but this is honestly, this is what's going on in the back of our minds a lot of times. And I don't know if it's our Americanism, our, 
you know, that we, we have rights and we have earned things. We want to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. But I think it's prevalent. I know it's prevalent in me. I think it's prevalent that when we, when we get into something, we immediately turn our eyes to say, well, who's out? Who doesn't belong? Because I'm in, I've done the hard work, I'm here. And so I'm not speaking to this saying, you're all like this. I'm not, I, I am. I do it. <clears throat> and we end up locking people into older brother type moralistic slavery. And it's, it's just not fun. It's not the gospel. It's not the hope that Jesus is offering in this story. And all along the father says, I'm with you. I love you. I am for you. I want to give you new life in my presence. So the story remains unresolved. And I want to point out one more thing. That someone has to pay for the restoration of the younger son. Somebody has to pay for this. If you remember, he was given a third of the assets. And he went and blew them all. Gone. So when the father restores him into the family, what's left? Two-thirds. And now he's saying, I'm going to divide this up again in the future. You're back in. You're a full son. You're not a slave. You're not a servant. You're back in. Full inheritance is restored. But what that means is what? The older brother gets less. I can't get into that far of a math. I don't know what those two-thirds and what. The older brother gets less now. And he's furious about it. He says, this son of yours comes home and you're going to give him back what he spent. Part of his inheritance that he's been working so hard for is now going to have to be shared because of the father's joy. This is a lot of what was happening in Israel at the time. The Pharisees were so furious that Jesus would be saying other people could come in. The older brother is angry and someone must pay for the restitution. Friends, can I remind you of the gospel? That our true older brother is Jesus. The one who had the fullness of heaven and earth at his disposal comes to earth so that we can have new life, so that we can be brought into the kingdom of God because of him. That our true older brother Jesus was willing to give up his full inheritance in glory and share it with a bunch of rebellious sons and daughters and to restore them into the loving embrace of the Father, to a celebration, to a feast with the joy of God surrounding us to take his own royal robe and lay it aside so that we could be robed in God's goodness, so that we could be robed in righteousness, Paul says. Hebrews 2 takes what we've been talking about the last couple weeks and and brings it into the picture here, and it says that, that Jesus became like us, took on flesh and blood so that he could be like us, so that he could kill sin and death on our behalf, so that we could be brought into the presence of the Father. There's there's a passage in John, right in the beginning of John, where where John says, you know, Jesus came, and when he came to the earth, he was in the world, and he, he, though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He made everything, and the world didn't even recognize him. And he says, uh, he came to that which his own, which was his own, and his own did not receive him. They denied him. But to those who would receive him, he would give the ability to become children of God, he says. Those who would believe in his name could become children of God. Do you hear it? The world did not receive him, though he was the good son. The world rejected him, though he didn't deserve it. The world did not recognize him, though he was the great son. He was denied. So that we can become children of God. And finally, I'll leave you with this, one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. In Romans 8, Paul says, The spirit that we have because we have 
become followers of Jesus doesn't lead us into a spirit of fear, a spirit of death, a spirit of moralism, a spirit of self-righteousness. It's a spirit that leads us not into slavery, but into sonship, into daughterhood of God, being adopted and giving the full rights, the full inheritance of Jesus, that we become co-heirs with him because of his life and death and resurrection, and then his spirit that lives in us. This is why we get to cry out to God, Abba, Father, Dad, you are compassionate towards me. Thank you for making me your son. Thank you for making me your daughter. Transform me by your spirit. And we get, we get restored into the family of God. Friends, this is our identity as a church community. We aim to be part of a small part of the family of God here in the Nazareth area, inviting people into a family that will have plenty of problems, plenty of things that come up and things that go crazy, which is what we're going to talk about next week, what it looks like to actually live out being a family, but we get to remind people and tell people, yeah, you are loved by God. Yeah, despite your rebellion, I'm rebellious too. Guess what? The Father stands on the porch looking for us, and he loves us, and he brings us in, and he transforms our hearts, and he transforms our minds. I'd ask you that you would consider this, that you would wrestle with this this week, maybe read Romans 8, Look at what Paul says about who we are and who we get to be as children of God. And I'd ask you to come back next week and hear what what it looks like to be family, to actually live this out by how we treat one another while we're here on this earth, modeling the kingdom to the world around us. Would you pray with me?